Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us in our July edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Lekas Dagubadi, and I will be the resident moderator today. Today, we'll be discussing uh, the moral distress and moral injury among attending neurosurgeons, a national survey. And uh, we're joined by the uh, senior author, Dr. Martina Stippler. Uh, Dr. Martina Stippler is uh, a faculty member at the Beth Israel Deaconess and will be joining us for the uh, discuss her article. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Lola Chambliss as our guest moderator from Vanderbilt University, as well as Dr. Kimberly Huang, our committee co-chair from Emory University. Thank you everyone for joining us. And uh, we'll get started immediately. Uh, Dr. Chambliss, um, do you want to start off? Yeah, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, Dr. Stippler, it's always good to see you and to get to discuss your work. Um, I wanted to ask you first, if you might define for us, what is moral distress? How do you define that in this survey? Thanks, Dr. Chambliss. I think that's a good way to start us off. Um, let's go a step even back further. Where does the word moral distress or moral injury come from? And it was first really discussed in combat. So when soldiers were exposed to tasks or things they had to do that went against their moral values. And then we picked this up in healthcare and medicine and initially was uh, applied to nurses. Like if you have restraints in your hospital system uh, that don't allow you to provide the care you want, that don't allow you to hold, uphold the professional standard. And now it has even more so uh, been introduced to other specialties, to surgeons and doctors. What we did in this work, um, there was a paper uh, uh, written uh, by Epstein et al. in 2019, who really published the first moral injury instrument and survey um, that can be used in the healthcare setting. We adapted this. We thought it was a little bit too long for surgeons. Uh, so we took out uh, some, um, some, some of the questions and we added two questions. We added uh, performing an operation that I think is not aligned with the patient values and goals. How often do you encounter it? And then how stressful do you find it? And then feeling overwhelmed with hyper-intense communication. So we try to uh, tailor it a little bit to the, the surgeon's world. We made it shorter and that was kind of our new instrument. And the way the instrument, it's in the paper, if people wanna use it, I think we had really good uh, content validity. Uh, we had a good internal structure that we really measure what we want to measure. Um, and, uh, it, 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 the way you fill out the survey is really you ask how often are you exposed to certain scenarios and then how distressing uh, do you find and that gives you the score. Um, and then our cutoff is about uh, a 12 to indicate that you, have, that you are, have moral distress. So I'm really interested in, in how you came up with the idea to study this in neurosurgeons. Um, what, what prompted you? Is there any experience in your own life or career or anything you observed that, um, that led you to this idea? Uh, so this is a uh, very good question. So I was asked to give backgrounds on burnout and wellness. Uh, so how often uh, some things I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm not sure why they asked the only woman surgeon to do that. Uh, maybe I was signaling something here. Uh, but uh, so I started to read about it. And I really, the, the numbers of burnout and the prevalence in surgeons, it was really staggering. So as I was more... Um, 
getting into this topic, it felt to me almost like end organ failure, right? So I'm a neurotrauma surgeon uh, and I deal a lot with ICPs like we all do. And as you know, once you have a high ICP, it may be already delayed for a lot of things. So in neurotrauma, we kind of do now multimodality monitoring. We want to look at blood flow. We want to look at oxygen before we have the high ICP. So we can do something before. And I just reading about burnout, I felt that burnout is already an organ failure. That's already when you other people, that's already when you are at risk and not take care of yourself and for many other things can happen to you and your patients and your practice. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there, we could monitor or uh, do a survey or ask doctors before they're burned out. And that's where the concept of moral injury and moral distress comes in, that a lot of people and a lot of studies thought that this happens before um, you have uh, uh, burnout. And, and that's how I got interested in, can we, can we measure it before it happens? So we maybe have a little bit room of doing something and intervening. Yeah, so that's really interesting. It's sort of a, a proactive approach to trying to understand the precursors to burnout, if I can summarize what I think you're saying, so that you might identify places to intervene long before we get to this point where, you know, the point of no return, maybe. Um, is that what you, you think you found in the survey? What, what were the main takeaway key findings for you? And was there anything that surprised you in your findings? Yeah, so... Um, you know, we want, we asked for burnout as well, because that's how we could validate our survey. And we were really surprised. So we, the way we assessed burnout, we had uh, our standard measurement for burnout, but then we also asked the surgeons and they said, do you think you're burned out? Like, what is your self-perception of that? And when you go by burnout, uh, by our OB questionnaire, we found that um, 67% were burned out and 13% were at risk for burned out. When we asked the surgeons themselves, do you think you're burned out? 41% said, yes, I'm burned out. And then there was this 30% group that said, well, maybe I'm burned out. And that 24% said that they are not burned out. So there is a little bit of discrepancy, like how much can we really look inside ourselves and recognize? And I think I'm not sure what your experience in the culture of neurosurgery is, Dr. Jambless, but we, I think we like being burned out or we are so, everybody's so burned out around us that we don't know exactly that we are uh, burned out is kind of our culture. Um, so I think this, this discrepancy of actually knowing that you, that, that you are burned out. I'm not sure if you have any experience or what you think the culture of neurosurgery gives us that introspection uh, of, of, of burnout or not. Yeah, I think we definitely have a skewed perspective from the rest of the world in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think we also are a culture that sometimes still, um, you know, still prides itself on this incredible work ethic, um, you know, this never say no mentality um, that, you know, is sort of what we hold up as the paragon of neurosurgical excellence. And I think that that's a potentially dangerous culture to be living in. And, and you're right, it does make us blind to some of the things that actually would you know, some of the interventions that might make us better at what we do. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I think the culture of overwork and the martyrdom uh, is, um, is definitely prevalent in neurosurgery. But I would say, you know, I think we need role models. You can be a good ass surgeon and you can do good surgery, but maybe uh, don't have to overwork to achieve that. So I think 
the introspection, are we burned out? What is actually the numbers and what do we perceive? I think that was a big takeaway for me. What was shocking for me was that 26% of neurosurgeons are considering leaving a position. So let's think about this. this is one in four. Like I can go around my department and count people out, right? I think one in four neurosurgeon is considering leaving their position. And, and I think that really has widespread implications. We know, I mean, I work um, in a big urban center. I know Dr. Chambliss, you work at a university uh, and then maybe there's no shortage of neurosurgeons where we are. Uh, but I, I, I think there are a lot of areas in neurosurgery where there's a shortage of neurosurgeons, where there's a shortage to get trauma care and get emergency care. And if, if the healthcare system, our hospitals, our departments, or our work culture is set up in that way, that one of four wants to leave, uh, I think that is scary. Uh, not necessarily that they want to leave um, neurosurgery overall, uh, but we see definitely attrition of people leaving neurosurgery or leaving maybe a more under, underserved area. So that was a surprise. I didn't think that that would be um, that high. Um, and also uh, the number, 50% of neurosurgeons have at some point experienced moral distress. And maybe this is a good time for me to talk a little bit, how does moral distress show up? It's we, this paper's focusing a little bit on futile surgery, uh, but that could be if you see a patient for follow-up or you want to get a patient in for follow-up and they don't have money and their insurance doesn't pay for transport, so they don't can come to you to remove their staple. That's a moral distress for me. When I try to call around and didn't we have a, a program to pay for a cap? No, we don't do this anymore. Right, this this simple things like this is small distress for me. When I want to spend time with my patients and I have fifteen minutes to to see all these patients, that is not maybe the care I want to provide. So I, I think it doesn't have to as be big as um, as, as futile surgery. I think that is a very big part of what neurosurgery what we sometimes do to have this difficult conversation. But I, sh I think it can show up even with overtime. I mean, we are just going through uh, this work shortage and, and, and COVID for many years, just getting a patient timely surgery for the operating room if they have a brain tumor that can lead to moral injury. So I think if we start thinking like this, everybody from experience this, we just need to find ways to deal with it, you know, to prevent it from getting to us. Absolutely, uh, Stipler. I, I mean, I, as a resident myself, have experienced some of those circumstances where I'm starting to get more into the messages with the patients and even something as simple as uh, not at all related to the neurosurgery department, but the patient's not seeing their other providers in time or you're not able to schedule a case in time. All these kind of things, small things, but they slowly chip away at your daily kind of workflow and what you're intending. We're all here to help patients. So it really does start to chip away at everything. And, and I think there was a good example you just gave. And I think we are surgeon, right? We, uh, or start, applies probably to all doctors, right? We are the interface with the patient. So I, I say, as the hospital gets leaner and meaner, right? As there are less support for patients, it's on our expense, right? You maybe, you maybe be on the phone and trying to get or a time or trying to get that patient a, a cap or you talk to insurance to get a um, something approved. So you do you take this on because this is your hypographic oath. That's what you signed up for, right? To take care of patients that you want them to be taken care of. Uh, but I think 
it, and it doesn't cost the, the, the thing for the hospital system, it doesn't cost them anything because you get the same salary, but I think it, you pay for it with moral injury, moral distress, and then burnout. Um, so so it, it has to come from somewhere. And right now, I think we doctors absorb a lot of the things to make the system work how we want it to work for our patients. I was um, also struck by, you mentioned the attrition or at least contemplation of attrition as being unusually high, at least, you know, like you said, one in four of our colleagues, right? So I was just wondering, and this may be a, you know, very big question to ask, but do you think there's a way that hospital systems or administrators, or perhaps, you know, it's always come good to go to your administrators with ideas about how you can solve your own problems, but how can we alter the system to mitigate this? Um, for example, I always think about this, we are not reimbursed to have long, extensive conversations about futile surgery, which you brought up, and why it may not be best for a patient, but we are reimbursed to do that futile surgery or nearly futile surgery, right? So what are some suggestions do you think we can put forward to our hospital systems to, and administrators to kind of work on this issue? Yeah, very good question. So let me uh, put those questions uh, in, in two parts. And the first question is how we talk about hospital, hospital administrators about burnout and moral injury. Um, and uh, sadly or not, I think it, we need to make it a business case, right? We, when we talk about burnout, we need to start making it a business case. Um, if a surgeon leaves a practice, the recruitment cost, the loss of productivity, that's easily a million dollars for the hospital. So if you lose a neurosurgeon or a surgeon, um, that costs you a million dollars. So they need to, you need to make it a business case. Also, if you have a burned out doctor, they have a high risk behavior. They may be um, not applied to all uh, the, the, the rules and standards of care, which can lead to poor outcome that all has been shown in studies. And they are not as productive, right? They may be also not be um, as polite or accommodating to patients in the clinic. And that leads to a bad reputation of your hospital system. So I think Hospital administrators, when we talk to them about burnout, um, and I think that's where this instrument for moral injury is great, make it a business case and say, we don't want to measure the end organ failure already, like I said it before, we don't want to measure the high ICP crisis, let's measure it ahead of time, and maybe find smaller things we can tweak uh, to prevent your workforce to leave or to get burned out. The second part of your question is reimbursement. Yes. So I, I think, you know, in a uh, fee for service uh, environment as we are now, we get paid for doing, we don't get paid for talking, maybe a at least not in a comparable way. Um, so, and, you know, that is, an, that is a kind of a wrong incentive. Capitated care, right? Much different. I think uh, doing, um, unnecessary surgery, doing surgery becomes more cost factor. So I think as more the payment system pivots more to capitated care from fee-for-service, I think we will see a change. But I just want to say, um, hopefully we all can put uh, our, uh, our values before the dollar signs and just provide the right care uh, for patients. And I think it depends a lot about the culture where you work and hopefully, um, you know, work like this will highlight this, that actually, that what you think it's so easy, I just gonna do the surgery, although I don't believe in, 
it maybe costs you at the other end. It maybe leads to your burnout and, and moral injury. Uh, but I think the culture of the place also plays a big, big role in that setting. I love that. I like the underlining the culture and how important that is and uh, at your work environment, being able to do the right thing. So kind of along the lines of culture, um, you mentioned in your discussion section that in America, there is a, preve a prevalent um, idea among patients that we must do um, everything we can to extend life at all costs, which can lead to a lot of this moral injury that you brought up into your paper and you discussed this very well. Um, can we as a group of neurosurgeons and as a society, is there anything we can do to um, work with that? I, it can make our job very challenging or is this something we just have to accept and find a way to work around? Is there anything practical we can do for that? Yeah. Um, so this is a difficult question <clears throat> to answer, but I will try. So um, uh, I think patient autonomy is very important. Uh, and I think in other cultures, we give the patient less autonomy. Uh, the doctor-patient relationship is more, um, that's what we're gonna do, that's the best for you. <clears throat> but sometimes I think we put a lot of burden on our patients to make decisions where we sometimes don't know what the right thing is. And we actually have studied neurosurgery and I have seen patients go through that before. So I love this quote from Lucy Kalaniti and that said, when there's no room for the scalpel, the only thing is left are words. So I say, when we say, well, extend life, no matter the cost. I don't think it was just the cost about monetary costs or hospital system. It's actually cost for the caregiver, cost for the patient, social, emotional cost. And I think sometimes <clears throat> we maybe don't do a good job. We don't have the right words to really explain how this life gonna look like, right? Again, not spending the time of saying, this is how life gonna look like. So um, I, I don't think that in, in the US there is, um, I think people are maybe more, feel more that they should have all the information to make the decision. But I think we as surgeons have to really provide that, incision, that information in a way they can understand, right? If we come in with Glasgow outcome scale and modified Rankin scale, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, and I love the work of Gretchen Swartz um, that really, and I encourage all the listeners, if they're interested in that work, um, to go online and watch the video of best case and worst case scenario. Because in that, they really say, okay, if you do the surgery, best case scenario, your mom may be gonna be in a nursing home, but she will be able to enjoy a cup of coffee and recognize you, worst case scenario, and um, she will be in, a, in bed with feeding tubes and not recognize you. You really kind of explain it in terms um, that they can understand and relate to, and then lay that best and worst case scenario out with no intervention, and then really give um, the, the answer of most likely outcome. What's the most likely outcome? And then really end with a re treatment recommendations. That's what I would do. Um, and so I think this life at no matter what the cost, I think we, I will take we own that because maybe we sometimes don't do a good enough job or don't take the time because of all the restraints and pressures we have, right? The moral injury right there. We have external pressures that doesn't allow us the time to really talk this through with the patients. Yes, there always will be outliers. I think we always had that and we I don't wanna go into about prognosis, right? Do we really know what's gonna happen with the patient? But I think in, mo in, in, in selected cases, we can 
uh, prognosticate and, and, and have this discussion at least with the family. Great, that, that was really, really helpful. I like the best case and worst case. That's a nice way to break it down to patients. Yeah, it is. It's a really nice way. And you, they really recommend that you draw it on a line where it ends up. And, um, you know, going back to the uh, trauma world, for example, you know, we have the rescue IZP trial for decompressive craniectomy. So upper severe disability was sneaked over to favorable outcome. All right. And that means that you uh, can be independent at home for eight hours. That favorable outcome does not mean you're going to go back to medical school. That means that you cannot figure out a bus schedule. So for some people, that may be acceptable. But again, we need to have the conversation what good outcome means. Absolutely. I, th I think communication is so critical in all of this. And, and going off of that a little, um, I think we, as a specialty, uh, connect with the challenges that we face in neurosurgery, uh, but, but have individual experiences and, and, as you've shown, deal with them on an individual basis. As we mentioned, uh, there is this culture of downplaying the injury it does to us, our burnout, and a tendency to underreport uh, these events. Uh, so I was just curious, um, how is it that we as peers can identify and engage someone that's going through this moral injury so we're not getting the one in four P uh, neurosurgeons that are considering quitting? Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> very important question, and and you you kind of gave the answer in um, in your question, and it's peer support, and that can be formal and informal. Um, so I uh, I've been invited to uh, be a visiting professor, where I then have this hour to interact with residents, and I'm like, well, what am I gonna talk about? And I talk about this. I actually talk about having difficult conversation. And I have a whole like hour scheduled. I never get actually to my scheduled didactic because we're just talking about this events of having this difficult conversation, giving bad news and what everybody feels and what they and how hard it was and the challenges they had. So I think we really need to make room for that for our residents, but also for our faculty, like having time to talk about this and the um, very, and because everybody has their own experience and maybe everybody has a way how to deal with it to, to combat burnout, to combat moral injury, your faculty, your attendings or your co-residents maybe have sentences and word structures to use that makes it easier for them to get through these conversations. So I think we really need to open a space where we can talk about this. And the work you said, which I really want to highlight is peer support. So we here actually at, at BI have a big peer supporter group. So um, you get trained uh, for that. And then, you know, if you have a bad outcome, if you had a difficult conversation, you can reach out to that group and they maybe assign you to a surgery resident that's maybe not a neurosurgery resident, but they are the same level. And then you don't feel like <clears throat> that you have, that there is any reporting structure or that it would get to you chief, but they understand where you're coming from. Because I think this futile searches we do, this discussions we have, they're so unique to, to, neuros, to surgeons and neurosurgeons specific. You cannot go home and talk to your spouse about this. You cannot go and say, yeah, I made a life that, I made three life and death decisions before lunch today, right? They don't understand what the toll and how that absorb, how, how 
what's going on in your mind and how that affects you even once you left the hospital. So I think peer support is crucial. Um, and I'm happy to share with any listeners um, that are interested in how we set this up here, but we have a peer support system, but in our program directors, uh, like my co-faculty here, Dr. Chambers, I think it's important to create room for residents to talk about it. Yeah, I was, I was gonna dig into that a little bit more because you know, when I was reflecting on your paper, um, I was thinking about you know, where, where have those incidents of moral distress been in my career? And you know, certainly there are still some to this day, but the ones that, that still sit with me and bother me are the ones that happened when I was a trainee. And I think that a lot of, um, a lot of that was, it was because of a lack of control. And when I think about the events even now that bother me, it's where I don't have the, the ability to impact the system well enough to fix the problem. But as a trainee, you really lack control and you lack the final decision-making capacity um, to, you know, when you're considering treatment plans. And sometimes you're in a position where you're asked to enact a treatment plan or operate on someone you know, that you don't think is right and you don't have the ability to walk away. Um, and you, know, you may be able to defend your case as best you can, but still have to proceed. And, and those are the incidents that I've personally found the most difficult to process. How do you, I love the idea of the peer support group. How do you arm your trainees in the moment to be able to, um, to handle those events so that they don't become these things they remember 12 years later, <laughs> like I am? Um, and, you know, and I also, and, and how often do they use those peer support networks? Because in my experience, you know, we get, we have really, we have a really bad night on call and then you just kind of put it behind you and keep going because you don't have time to engage with it. And then those are the things that probably do build up and create that burnout. So how are you, yeah. how are you arming your trainees against this? Yeah, very good question. And um, Stephen Miranda, a, a resident at Penn, he actually wrote a paper uh, about this in, in, in neurosurgery trainees, because as you pointed out, there's another layer of complexity. They have to act what somebody else does and they maybe don't agree with it. And it happens more often than you think. So I, I think, I that that I give a voice to my residents, right? So if a resident disagrees with treatment decisions, it may be that mine, that it's the correct one. It's just a lack of knowledge or lack of experience or not appreciating the nuances. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that and that we give them a voice. That's what we should do as teachers um, and, and really um, talk, let them, hopefully have a learning environment where they feel comfortable speaking out about this. Um, where, or where you can even pick up some nuances where there is some resistance or pushback on that. I, I think the pause is very important. You talked about in the morning moment, moment, like if we have a devastating trauma or something that it's just really horrible circumstances uh, with um, brain tumors. And I think we really pause. Uh, and it's, it's we, we, we call a pause in the OR or we call a pause in the ICU. And where it's a multidisciplinary team really says, well, that was really hard. Or we, that, that was really difficult. I really struggled with this. You know, I don't see the neurosurgery residents um, being that open about it. I think it comes back to our culture um, to it, but I, I think we just need to give, give it space. And, and, and I think everybody is different, right? Some people more open up in a group setting. Some people maybe prefer the one-on-one, -on -one, 
Um, but I, 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 I think hopefully with a discourse, uh, with having an open communication, also education with the residents, we can give them more space. So we don't, it doesn't, people don't think about it 20 years later. Yeah, I think this is uh, an incredible discussion though, Stapler. I, I want to commend you and your authors for bringing this, uh, co-authors for bringing this out in neurosurgery. Very interested to see all the stuff that will come out of this. And hopefully, as you said, we can uh, arm our residents and also uh, discuss with the <clears throat> attendings on how to uh, tackle this. Uh, so as a quick preview, what do, you, what do you have in mind for any kind of follow-up studies or interventions? Yeah, so thank you for that question. So first of all, um, I'm pretty excited that we got this moral survey, this instrument for moral distress out and published. And I really wanna encourage everyone to use it to you know, do their own project and maybe identify issues um, before we reach burnout. Uh, I personally want to explore the difference between the, the impact of communication training, right? We spend so many hours learning how to operate. We spend so, in comparison, so little hours learning how to have a difficult conversation, how to give bad news. And everybody does that. You say, well, I'm not going to do nor I'm not going to do trauma. I'm just going to have a spine practice. Well, you're going to have to tell a lot of patients that there's no surgery for their back pain. Brain tumor surgery, skull-based surgery. I mean, I think you, you name it. I think anybody in neurosurgery uh, will have the difficult conversation, but we spend so little time on it. And if I reflect back on my training, I don't think I had any formal training in having a difficult conversation or providing bad prognosis. It was a hidden curriculum. And I think we have to take this out. And I want to see how we, how that would impact moral injury and burnout. It's going to be <clears throat> difficult to study because burnout is so multifactorial, right? I could have the best uh, communication training and then somebody changes something on, on, on medical records and then all my uh, improvement I uh, um, could uh, could generate and with my moral uh, with my uh, conversation training maybe be impacted by uh, electronic record record change so I think it's complex because it's so multifactorial but I really want to explore further the link between moral burnout uh, moral injury and um, and communication training for residents and and faculty yeah, I think, I think that is absolutely necessary, as you say, and mortality is so real in neurosurgery um, that it, it does affect us all. Well, we can keep talking about this all day, but uh, we, we are at uh, uh, towards the end. So I, I want to thank Dr. Stipler, our, uh, uh, Dr. Chambliss, and Dr. Huang for joining us and uh, talking about this very uh, real and very um, impactful topic uh, on what's affecting all of us as neurosurgeons. Um, please join us on our uh, Congress of Neurological Surgeons website to gain 1.5 CME credits for this and also check out all the prior podcasts we've done. Uh, and thank you.